So I'm delighted to see y'all tonight, and we are going to start off with a little guess that tune. Uh, I will be very surprised if anyone knows this. Wow, that just got really loud. Uh, sounds like the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yes. resource. So if you're not getting that and you're here in person, please do sign up on the list. If you are out uh, in podcast land, uh, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston um, in the United States, South Carolina, uh, and look for my name and just send me a note and I'll get you added. So I'm delighted that we have uh, so many people in other places that are following along with us. So a couple of things about why I'm so excited about this book, in case you haven't noticed. I'm very excited about this book. Uh, one of the reasons is because it is such a work of genius, because it's simultaneously doing three things. It is a great capstone to all of the Chronicles of Narnia, those great children's stories. It ties up all the loose ends beautifully. Uh, but it also is a profound reflection on the sin of Eden, the means of grace, and the glory of heaven. And then perhaps most Remarkably, given that it was written in 1943, it serves as a really excellent parable about following Jesus in 21st century America, particularly in terms of the importance of word and truth. So we talked a little bit about Lewis and the inklings and the power of story and the idea that part of the reason Lewis and Tolkien wanted to write fiction was that people who would never read theology would read a story. And this was a way to, as Lewis said, smuggle truth into their minds. And Lewis starts off this book talking about apes and monkeys, which have a lot of uh, 
connotations, not only of mischievousness, but this whole idea, remember, particularly in the 40s and 50s, this idea that everyone was looking for the missing link. Y'all are too young to remember that. Uh, but the missing link was going to be that bridge that showed definitively that man had evolved from the apes. And so this whole, Lewis was violently opposed to that whole notion. Uh, and so uh, this whole idea of creatures who are ne nearly human pretending to be human uh, really stuck in his craw. And there's this great little line from Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Take my advice when you meet anything that's going to be human and isn't yet, or used to be human once and isn't now, or ought to be human and isn't, you keep your eyes on it and feel for your hatchet. There is a deep truth there. And you probably noticed we're only in chapter three, but shift to the ape has already come out and said, I'm not an ape, I'm a man. Look at me, I'm a man. Although obviously he's an ape. Uh, but in the face of that objective reality, he declares that he's a man. And that's exactly the kind of thing that Mr. Beaver is saying, watch out. Uh, donkeys, donkeys are uh, very interesting creatures and they have such an interesting role in scripture uh, because you see the donkey that bears Mary and Jesus in the womb to Bethlehem to be born, the donkey that bears Jesus on his last journey into Jerusalem to meet his death, and then this great story of Balaam's ass who has more spiritual insight than any other person in the entire book of Numbers. So there's that going on, the Genesis 3 parallels, which is the story of the temptation and fall, um, unicorns being that great medieval symbol of purity and grace in the incarnation, and this whole idea of reverence for the creation that God made uh, and that it was good. So we're going to slow things down a little bit this week. We raced through chapter 3 last week, uh, and chapter 3 has some really important themes that are going to be building blocks for what we're gonna see later on in this story. So we're gonna do a little bit of a deeper dive into some of those themes. So if you thought you were supposed to read chapter four and you didn't get around to it, you're really lucky because we're not gonna to get to chapter four tonight, that's for next week. So last week as we raced through, uh, we talked a little bit about the setting, the idea that the ape is at a stable. And again, Lewis never does anything by accident, the stable, is to recall to us the stable of Bethlehem. Uh, the ape is holding court, and he is declaring that he alone is the intermediary for all communication with Aslan, Aslan being the Christ figure in Narnia. So the themes that we raced through last week, sin, remorse, and repentance, faith that is in vain, true friendship and loyalty, lies, selfishness, greed, and oppression, deceit and discernment, pride and the uniqueness of man made in God's image, slavery, stealing, and tyranny, freedom, insults, and tyranny, the danger of theological innovation, and courage in standing up for truth. And when you look at all of those in one place, it is quite striking, at least to me, how very relevant every single one of those is right now. So I want to first start with uh, looking a little bit more at deceit and discernment. So this is the passage that we looked at last week. Uh, so this is in the scene where the ape has just told the squirrels that Aslan is very angry at them and they need to go get more nuts because I, I mean Aslan, want more nuts for the winter. So the head squirrel plucked up courage to say, please, would Aslan himself speak to us about it if we might be allowed to see him? Well, you won't, said the ape. He may be very kind, though it's a lot more than most of you deserve, and come out for a few minutes tonight. Then you can all have a look at him. But he will not have you all crowding around him and pestering him with questions. Anything you want to say to him will be passed on through me if I think it's worth bothering him about. In the meantime, all you squirrels had better go and see about nuts and make sure they're here by tomorrow evening or you'll catch it. The poor squirrels all scampered away as if a dog were after them. 
This new order was terrible news for them. The nuts they'd carefully hoarded for the winter had nearly all been eaten, and of the few that were left, they'd already given the aid far more than they could spare. Then a deep voice, it belonged to a great tusked and shaggy boar, spoke from another part of the crowd. But why can't we see Aslan properly and talk to him, it said. When he used to appear in Narnia in the old days, everyone could talk to him face to face. Don't you believe it, said the ape. And even if it was true, times have changed. Aslan says he's been far too soft with you before. Do you see? Well, he isn't going to be soft anymore. He's going to lick you into shape this time. He'll teach you to think he's a tame lion. A low moaning and whimpering was heard among the beast, and after that, a dead silence, which was more miserable still. In a few of the scriptures we talked about, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And then from 1 John, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then this key verse from Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. So part of what's going on here is that we have deceit coming full bore from the ape, and we have the Narnians maybe trying to exercise discernment, but not really knowing how to do that. And the problem and the issue is the character of Aslan, because the Narnians know or think they know that Aslan is good, that Aslan has always been approachable, that he has loved them, that he gave his life for them, uh, to bring them back uh, into relationship with him, and that he is the good king of Narnia. But everything that the ape is saying is contrary to that. And so they don't know what to do. So the question is, does he really love his creatures? And the unanimous witness and remembrance of all the people in Narnia and of all the writings that they have is that Aslan was kind and approachable. This is the truth, truth with a capital T, about Aslan. But note what the ape says. Even if it was true, was true, times have changed. In other words, truth is not immutable and that's a fancy word that is, it's a stronger word than unchangeable. Um, it has the same rate as uh, root as mutate or mutation. And that's what I like about it because it means it doesn't shift even a little bit. It is immutable. Um, but the ape is saying, no, truth is not immutable, but it changes with time. The past is not to be trusted. What matters is the present and the future. And Lewis was vehemently opposed to this type of flawed reasoning, which he called chronological snobbery. Basically the idea that we are smarter and better than any age that ever lived before. And our best thinkers are so much smarter and better than any of those in ages before that whatever we think deserves to be elevated to the throne and whatever people thought in the past deserves to be thrown out. And the reason that this is so important is that this is a huge issue in our culture right now. The idea of truth being immutable, uh, which used to be pretty well understood and agreed upon, um, even in academia, uh, under the last couple of decades, that concept has been under major, major assault. And Lewis saw this back in the 1940s. But before then, uh, one of the eras where there was a lot of uh, discussion and discord, shall we say, about the nature of truth was in the 17th century. Uh, most of us don't know lots about the 17th century. Uh, I certainly don't know a lot about it. But one of the things that happened in the 17th century 
is that there was a correction in a lot of the theology of the church, and a lot of that was due to the Puritans. And uh, if you were in the screw tape class, you will remember that Lewis said one of the great triumphs of the philology department of hell, that is the language department of hell, was to give Puritans such a terrible connotation that we think Puritans are bad. It's bad to be Puritan. But Puritans, the word comes from seeking the pure truth of the gospel. Now, they may have gone overboard in some areas, but a lot of them did some really good work, and a lot of their theology is really strong. And there's a Puritan scholar um, who was a clergyman named Stephen Charnock, and he wrote this beautiful book that's called The Existence and Attributes of God on this theme of immutable truth. The whole work is about why truth is immutable. And he comments on Psalm 102, which was what our song was based on at the beginning. Listen to these words from Psalm 102, talking about God. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. And Charnock says this, the design of the psalmist is to confirm the church in the truth of the divine promises, that though the foundations of the world should be ripped up and the heavens clatter together and the whole fabric of them be unpinned and fall to pieces, the firmest parts of it dissolved, yet the church should continue in its stability because it stands not upon the changeableness of creatures, but is built upon the immutable rock of the truth of God, which is as little subject to change as his essence. Now, I would love to read that about 10 times because it is strong medicine. But it is a reminder that when we start, and it's hard not to because we live in this culture where we're just inundated with this idea that truth is relative all the time. And we think that, yeah, well, maybe there are things about the truth and about scripture. Maybe that's not actually true. And, Maybe we don't rely on this thing or that thing, and we get ourselves all twisted up. But the fact of the matter is that the scriptures testify over and over again to the fact that God's truth and God's kingdom are unchanging. They do not change with time. Jesus does not change with time. He doesn't uh, change his ideas about things. Uh, you may have seen in some progressive denominations, things where it says, God still speaks, which is usually followed by something that is contrary to scripture. Uh, and there's a misunderstanding that yes, God does still speak, but God does not add to or take away from his word. And part of this idea of chronological snobbery, Lewis talked about in the brilliant lecture that he gave when he started at Cambridge. And that's the lecture where he calls himself a dinosaur. And what he says, and I think this to me was such a helpful illustration, he said the reason that our modern age is so preoccupied with what's new and shiny and up-to-date and latest thing is that after the Industrial Revolution moving into the Technological Revolution, what happens is that things that are newer are better. And I meant to bring um, a little show and tell with me tonight, but I forgot. Uh, I was going to bring somewhere in a drawer in my closet, I have an old brick phone. You remember the brick? Uh, one of those really early mobile phones. It's like literally the size of a brick and weighs about as much. And it was like really clunky and didn't work very well. And now we have this great iPhone that we can do all this amazing stuff with, and you would be a fool to say that the brick is better than the iPhone. But the problem is, as more and more and more technology invades our lives, virtually everything 
that we use over the course of the day, the new thing is better than the old thing. The central air conditioning is way better than that old carrier window unit that weighed 4,000 pounds and leaked into your wall. You know, all of these things, the new stuff is better. And so we bought into this idea unconsciously because it presses on us culturally. But the problem is that concept can't and must not be transferred over to the idea of truth. And uh, a Lewis scholar said this, one of the often heard objections to faith in Christ is that it is old fashioned or outmoded, a relic of the distant past and therefore easily discarded. After all, what could a 2000 year old faith have to say to us of the 21st century? This is one of the obstacles that Lewis had to overcome when he was an atheist because he thought exactly that uh, coming to faith in Christ. And his friend Owen Barfield, uh, fortunately, argued with Lewis over and over again about this and the whole concept of how could this ancient religion be relevant to me living today in the 20th century back then or for us, the 21st century. So Lewis defines chronological snobbery as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited. And Lewis said the only way that you can approach this is if you think something is discredited, you have to say, why did this idea go out of date? Was it ever refuted? Or was it actually true and people just didn't like it? And if it was refuted, who refuted it, where and how conclusively? So in other words, you have to determine if an old idea was false before you reject it. We would not want to say that everything believed in an ancient culture was false. Which things are false and why, and which things remain true? So that is why Lewis, throughout all of his Christian works, talks about how unbelievably important discernment is. And that discernment must be based on the truth of scripture and the kingdom of God, rather than succumbing to the spirit of the age. You don't want to discern using the wrong tools, whether the New York Times says this is right. Uh, you know, that is not a good measure. So pastor and scholar John MacArthur puts it this way. In its simplest definition, discernment is nothing more than the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong. Discernment is a process of making careful distinctions in our thinking about truth. In other words, the ability to think with discernment is synonymous with an ability to think biblically. First Thessalonians 5 teaches that it is the responsibility of every Christian, note that, not just clergy, but every Christian to be discerning. Examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. And John warns similarly when he says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And anything that you say, or rather anything that you hear in this class, anything that you hear out of the pulpit of St. Philip's, if it doesn't accord with scripture, as a believer, you have a responsibility to go make an appointment individually with whoever said whatever it was and speak to them about it. And that exercise of discernment is something that is for all Christians, but it's not based on our opinions about things. It's based on the word of God. So the key to living an uncompromising life lies in one's ability to exercise discernment in every area of his or her life. For example, failure to distinguish between truth and error leaves the Christian subject to all manner of false teaching. False teaching then leads to an unbiblical mindset which results in unfruitful and disobedient living, a certain recipe for compromise. So the only way we can hope to exercise discernment is to know the scriptures, to not only know the scriptures, but to know how the church has understood them, what the body of believers together has believed that these scriptures teach and that we need to find and sit under sound teaching, refusing to be led astray 
by false teachers like the ape in the story. And what you see in the story is that there is false teaching coming from this ape that is manifestly lies, but people are swayed by it. Because particularly if somebody's a good speaker, it's really easy to be swayed. And there's a great quotation from Lewis when he was listening to one of Hitler's radio addresses, and of course, Lewis was fluent in German like everything else. Um, so he's listening to it, and he wrote a letter to his brother, and he said, I know every reason why Hitler is wrong, I know why his philosophy is wrong, I know why every practice that he does is vile, but he says it is very difficult not to be swayed just a little when you listen to him. And that's true, because the spirit of the age sounds good. It sounds good. And remember, in the early part of the story, Puzzle the Donkey doesn't want to do the put on the lion skin. He doesn't want to until the ape appeals to his self-interest and says something that Puzzle might like that he would get out of it, and then he succumbs. So this whole idea of chronological snobbery is so important. Lewis addresses it also in Mere Christianity, and he's trying to address those who say it would be a mistake to advocate turning back the clock. And what Lewis means here is not turning back the clock and saying, we're all gonna dress like we're in a Jane Austen novel. Um, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about turning back the clock in terms of what the spirit of the age is and what is considered to be truth and important. And he says it this way, as to putting the clock back, would you think I was joking if I said you can put a clock back and that if the clock is wrong, it is often a very sensible thing to do. But I would rather get away from that whole idea of clocks. We all want progress, but progress means getting nearer the place you want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. We've all seen this when we do arithmetic, especially if you do arithmetic like I do. When I've started to sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start over again, the faster I shall get on. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And yet, don't we do that all the time? And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. And I just wanted to share with you this poem. Lewis was a big admirer of William Butler Yeats because he thought Yeats got the culture right, he got the problems right, all his answers were wrong. Um, Yeats, all of his answers are sort of magic, occult, all sorts of weird stuff. But it's really interesting when you look at the imagery of this poem, I can't help but think Lewis must have been reading this while he was writing some of the parts of the last battle. So the second coming, of course, is thinking about the return of the Lord at the end of the age. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming, hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi, that is the spirit of this world, troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle, and what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. 
and I don't have time to unpack all the imagery of this, but part of what Yeats is saying is that 20 centuries of human history were utterly undone and there was great revelation because of Jesus' birth at Bethlehem. That that changed the course of everything. But now some rough beast, uh, which is one of the images for the Antichrist, is slouching toward Bethlehem to be born out of the spirit of the age. So there's a lot to think about there. So um, the second theme that I wanted to talk about, other than chronological snobbery, is this idea of pride, objective reality, and the uniqueness of being made in God's image. These are things that are very much an issue in our world right now. And so uh, here's the passage from the story. And now there's another thing you got to learn, said the ape. I hear some of you saying, I am an ape. Well, duh. Well, I'm not. I'm a man. If I look like an ape, that's because I'm so very old. Hundreds and hundreds of years old. And it's because I'm so old that I'm so wise. And it's because I'm so wise that I'm the only one Aslan is ever going to speak to. He can't be bothered talking to a lot of stupid animals. He'll tell me what you've got to do, and I'll tell the rest of you. And take my advice and see you do it in double quick time, for he doesn't mean to stand any nonsense. So there's a ton of scripture about this. I'm not going to read all of it, but pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And the interesting thing here, you see this ape who is manifestly an ape. Remember he's got on this ridiculous outfit. Do you remember the outfit? He's got on this pinkish red um, sort of party frock coat kind of thing. And then he's got some slippers that he's trying to wear on his hands to make them look like feet. Um, he looks ridiculous and he's got the paper crown out of the Christmas cracker that he's wearing around. And he's saying, I'm a man, you must call me a man. Even though it is clear that I'm an ape, you must say I am a man because that is what I'm telling you that I am. And yet you have the objective reality that he's an ape. And people don't know what to do. The creatures don't know what to do. And he's so loud and he's so insistent and he keeps saying it over and over and over again that they begin to capitulate. But the problem with that, remember we just read a passage a little bit ago that talked about being wise in your own eyes. So who is saying the ape is wise here? The ape. Yes. And what's he saying about all the rest of us? We're all what? Yes, idiot. Stupid. 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 Now, Lewis, if he were here, would also say that is such a great example of what happens when a culture is beginning to fall apart, when people are no longer capable of logical discourse about things, and they just result to insults and name-calling. Not that we see any of that going on. Yeah, so here we go. I hear some of you saying I'm an ape. Well, I'm not. I'm a man. And it's because I'm so wise that I'm the only one Aslan is ever going to speak to who can't be bothered talking to a lot of stupid animals. So obviously, the ape knows what's best for everyone. You are an idiot, and you should just shut up and do whatever he says. And so often, the spirit of the age tells you exactly that same thing. And if you don't agree with it, then somehow there's something wrong with you. And you are, you are bigoted or you are um, antediluvian or whatever phrase they might want to throw out at you. But what Lewis talks about so profoundly in mere Christianity is that the great sin the sin from which every other sin derives is the sin of pride. And Lewis puts it this way in Mere Christianity. Today I come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, 
and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. When I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. And Lewis talks about in Screwtape and in Mere Christianity that one of the great triumphs of the devil has been to get Christians to think that sin is all about sex and to completely forget about pride and just let that go unchecked. So according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitive only by accident, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. Once the element of competition is gone, pride has gone. Pride is essentially competitive in a way the other vices are not. And this was before social media. <laughs> Enmity. Enmity is a fancy strong word for hatred. 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 Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity hatred between man and man, but enmity to God. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you can't see something that's above you. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious. I'm afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. And this is very much like the parable that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And you'll remember in that parable, Jesus says a Pharisee and a tax collector went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stood in the front and prayed about himself thus, I thank thee, O God, that I am not like other men. I tithe, I do all of the things that the law says, and I'm especially not like that tax collector over there. And you can just see him smug. And then Jesus said, but the tax collector lay face down on the floor of the temple and would not even look up and said, oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said it was that man, the tax collector, that went home justified before God. So Jesus is very strong about this idea of how dangerous pride is. And remember that verse where people come and say, Lord, Lord, we did this for you and we did that for you. And Jesus says these chilling words, depart from me, I never knew you. So whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we can be sure we're being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether, for pride is a spiritual cancer it eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. And then Lewis goes on to talk about how, again, the philology, the language department of hell has transformed what the word humility actually should mean. And he says, we've got this wrong image of humility. Don't imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap 
who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a bigger step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. And one of the things Lewis gets at is that what humility means is not thinking, oh, I am a worm, oh, I can't do anything, oh, I'm so awful and gross and despicable. Humility means you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about other people. You're thinking about God. You're thinking about how to serve others. You're being interested in others and that you are thinking about how to serve them and to serve God and his kingdom. So that leads us to this next part about objective reality and the uniqueness of man made in God's image. You'll remember in the creation narrative that God speaks everything into existence. God speaks everything. God said, let there be light. And what's the next line? And there was light. God speaks things out of nothing into existence. And he speaks all of this wonderful, the stars and the sky, the seas, the plants, the animals, and all of those things, he says, are good. But then when he creates man, he says, this is very good. And then it goes on in Genesis to say that God created man in his own image, Male and female, he created them. The only thing in all creation that is made in the image of God is man and woman. The only thing. It is of a completely different order than all of the rest of creation. Nothing else is made in the image of God. Nothing else is made with the capacity to create, to tell stories. Nothing else is made with the gift of speech and the ability to use words to make meaning. There is a huge divide, as wonderful as dogs are, and dolphins, and all the amazing animals that there are. There's a huge divide between human beings and animals. But we live in a culture that tells us, no, 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 no. Human animals are badly behaved animals. All the other animals are more virtuous. The human animal is the rapacious one that's ruining the world for everyone else. And the human animal needs to shape up. But this is a fundamental discarding of God's framework about things. Now listen to what the ape says after he's, he's gone on and on about how stupid they all are uh, and how smart he is. And so now he's going to straighten them out. Don't you love it when someone says, you are so stupid, let me tell you how to live your life. <laughs> they didn't hear that concept about earning the right to be heard. So, there you see, said the ape, it's all arranged, and all for your own good, all you stupid little animals. We will be able, with the money you earn, to make Narnia a country worth living in. There'll be oranges and bananas pouring in, and roads and big cities and schools and offices and whips and muzzles and saddles and cages and kennels and prisons. Oh, everything. But we don't want those things, said an old bear. We want to be free. And we want to hear Aslan speak himself. Now don't you start arguing, said the ape, for it's a thing I won't stand. I'm a man. And this gets really bad. You're only a fat fat, stupid old bear, because obviously your weight has something to do with your reasoning capacity. You're a fat, stupid old bear. What do you know about freedom? You think freedom means doing what you like. Well, you're wrong. Well, that's a great argument. That isn't true freedom. True freedom means doing what I tell you. Huh? Grunted the bear and scratched its head. It found this sort of thing hard to understand, no doubt. So there's a lot of scripture about this, including the one that we read every week in this class. It is for freedom 
that Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And Lewis, in an essay in God in the Dark, says, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. And this whole idea pervades Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man and That Hideous Strength. And one of the things we're gonna do in this class is we're gonna make linkages with other places where Lewis talks about some of these same ideas. And so here, the ape is clear, are we all agreed that the ape is not a man? <laughs> I just wanna make sure we're all on the same page here. If, if you think the ape is a man, we need to talk, okay? All right, the ape is clearly not a man, yet he continues to insist that he is, and in addition to that, that he deserves special treatment as a result, denying objective reality. And I'm just not even gonna go where our culture is about all of this, use your imagination. So in 1943, the same year that Lewis is writing The Last Battle, uh, he gave three scholarly lectures and an academic conference on philosophy. It was a conference full of philosophy professors. Uh, and the lectures were published under the title The Abolition of Man. And Lewis, who was not a dodo, uh, Lewis thought that The Abolition of Man was probably his most important work. Now the problem with it is that it was lectures that were delivered to philosophy professors. And so even though it's one of his shortest books, when you pick it up and start reading it, you'll be like, maybe I'm a fat, stupid old bear. <laughs> but it's a book that if you work with it, it will repay the effort. And some of y'all were in the class that we did on this um, a little while ago. So the three lectures that make up this book, the first one is called Men Without Chests. And what that is about is the importance of objective value, objective reality, standards of right and wrong, um, and the poison of subjectivism. Subjectivism would be a culture that says you should speak your own truth. Have you ever heard of a culture like that? Um, speak your own truth because there's no such thing as absolute truth or immutable truth. You are the one who decides. There's no such thing as beauty. There's no such thing as good architecture and bad architecture. There's no such thing as good literature and bad literature. It's all just an expression of whatever someone wanted to do, and that makes it wonderful. So Lewis warns that if you lose objective value and you embrace subjectivism, you're gonna lose uh, basically civilization. So the second part is called the way, and he uses this word, the Tao, which is not to be confused with Taoism. So if you studied Eastern religion, don't worry, that's not what he's talking about. Um, he's using Tao as a symbol for natural law. And by natural law, what he means is things that are built into the universe, things like conscience, things that have always been considered standards of right and wrong, that you will never find a culture uh, that admires cowardice. Um, you will never find a culture that says it's great, or a religion for that matter, that says it's great to just have rampant sex with whoever you want to. But there are, the, there are these things that are sort of built in to our understanding of what it means to be moral. And they're things that we will call evil, that most people will agree are evil. Uh, and Lewis says that this natural law is a real thing that pervades creation and pervades the human race and that we need to listen to it. And then the last chapter, The Abolition of Man, which works on several levels, the idea, one of the ideas is just what we were talking about a minute ago, that if you dumb down what it means to be human, that eventually there won't be humanity left. Man will live like an animal. People will live like beasts, warring among each other and living like beasts and having uh, given up on all of the beautiful things about being human. 
So Michael Ward, who many of y'all heard at Mira Anglicanism, heard when he preached here um, last year, probably the greatest living scholar on Lewis. He wrote a book called After Humanity, which is sort of a chilling title. Just think about that. After humanity, it means humanity is gone, uh, which is a guide to the abolition of man. And he says this, in this enduringly influential book, Lewis defends the objectivity of value, pointing to the universal moral ecology that all great philosophical and religious traditions have acknowledged as self-evident. Although Lewis writes as an apologist for Christianity, here he constructs his argument on purely philosophical grounds, making an anthropological claim that is based on what it means to be human rather than a theological case. Objective value, he maintains, is humanity's ethical inheritance, which we can extend and develop, but may not properly escape. Insofar as we try to deny or subvert this way of being moral, i.e. The, the code of morality that for virtually all of human history with a few aberrations, people have said this is what's right and this is what's wrong. That if we try to subvert that, we make ourselves and those we raise or those we teach or those we influence essentially less than human. We produce men without chest, or in other words, people who have no stable heart, no reliable capacity to liaise between intellect and appetite, no ability to distinguish between what is good in itself and what is good for them, i.e. self-interest displaces the whole idea of right and wrong, the whole idea of what's good and noble and true and beautiful is thrown out in favor of this is what I want and I want it now. Right thus dissolves into might and sheer willpower takes the place of reason. The result is the erasure of our own true identity, the abolition of man. And Lewis is arguing that this moral law is a premise, is part of what it means to be human. It's not a conclusion that you can reach. It is a given, it is a fact, it's part of the framework. We have to accept it. It's an objective reality that we did not make up. We must submit to it, surrender to it, and grow up within it. And I love this image. It's like a trellis with which you would train a climbing rose. But if you take the opposite view that we create moral law, according to our own subjective preferences, then you can do whatever you like, because there's nothing that's objectively real in the moral world. No, it's just whatever you happen to choose. Happiness consists in conforming oneself to reality, not twisting reality to suit your own convenience or your own desires. The common modern-day phrase, speaking my truth, connects very precisely with this prophecy that Lewis is making, that we'll all just determine reality according to our own particular perspective, which leads to moral anarchy and therefore to a post-truth world. I realize this is sort of heavy, um, but it's something that's so important for us to understand. And it's also important to realize that just as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. If any of you uh, have the privilege to study the, Russian, the great Russian novelist when you were in school, Dostoevsky writes over and over and over again about exactly this. The whole book, Crime and Punishment, which unfortunately most people today are taught through a Freudian lens and have no idea that it was written as a Christian polemic, the whole premise of that book is that there's this man, uh, the, the Ubermensch, uh, who thinks he is so superior to all this stupid stuff that went behind him, all these things in the past, old moral law, all that kind of stuff, and that he is the brave new man, very progressive, he knows what's right and wrong because he is smarter than anyone who's ever lived. And so this whole idea of like Christian law particularly is to be absolutely disregarded. And so he decides that in his town, there are these two women that are pawnbrokers who are a blight on society. And he thinks the world would be better off if those women were just killed. They don't deserve to live. 
which is this is exactly where this kind of type of thinking goes. And so he kills the women thinking, I have made the world a better place by getting rid of these scummy people. And he's like, now I'm going to be even happier and greater than I was. But he finds that he is tormented by guilt. He doesn't believe in guilt, but he's tormented by it. And he's tormented by the idea that he did something terribly wrong and that he has violated the framework that God, who he doesn't believe in, put in the world. And he slowly starts to go crazy because of this until ultimately he meets a prostitute who is a believer in Jesus who shares with him the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And Dostoevsky puts six paragraphs of the Gospel of John right there into the novel, and then it ends with a resurrection scene. Well, that's pretty clear, but somehow we can teach that without talking about Jesus. Uh, but the, the point of the book is that you can't escape because this moral framework, this moral law, the way that God created us is immutable. It is baked in, if you will. And in that hideous strength, which is the story version of The Abolition of Man, where Lewis writes a story about what it might look like if that kind of world came to pass, um, there's this horrible group called the Nice, which is so typical, and you see this in our culture now. If something really awful is being done, you give it a name that sounds really praiseworthy. So the Nice is like the most evil institution, and they're trying to reprogram this man that they've captured. And they put him into what they call the objective room. Well, objective sounds like that should be a good thing, right? Objective reality and all of that. But what they've done is they have taken what is a normal room and they've shifted all the proportions so it's like, like in a carnival house of mirrors where everything is out of whack and everywhere you look is distorted. And so um, the way that Lewis puts it as the character speaks, it says, and day by day as the process went on, the idea of the straighter than normal, which had occurred to him during his first visit to this room, grew stronger and more solid in his mind till it had become kind of a mountain. He had never before known what an idea meant. He had always thought till now they were just things in one's head. But now, when his head was continually attacked and often completely filled with the clinging corruption of the training, this idea towered up above him something which obviously existed quite independently of himself and had hard rock surfaces which would not give, surfaces he could cling to. And what he's saying is that the more he was exposed to this crooked and messed up, it reinforced in him more and more an understanding that there is something that's true, there is something that's right, and that it's something that's got to be stood up for. And the problem in our culture is just like in that story of Jacob and Esau, when Esau is the one who is deserving to get his father's blessing, but Jacob is crafty, and Esau has come in from working, and he is able to convince Esau to give up the blessing of his father, his heritage, and the whole covenant of God for a bowl of pottage, which is a type of stew. He sells his birthright for a mess of pottage. And I would suggest to you that is exactly what is going on in our culture. And we need to be bold about embracing this truth. So as we ponder these things, part of what's remarkable about the last battle is that all of this is right in there. And he's layered all of these things into this story. And this ape is such an example of the spirit of the age. He reminds me of that rough beast that's the spiritus mundi in that poem. And it's a great reminder, and I hope an encouragement to us, to try to become people of discernment, to watch out for the sin of pride, to look for ways to serve and to go deep into the truth of the kingdom of God and to embrace things so that are good and true and beautiful in the fullest sense of that word. So with all that, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that your kingdom is one that cannot be shaken. 
It is not a kingdom that sets on any foundation made by man, but it sets on an eternal foundation laid from everlasting. And Lord, that you on your throne are immutable. You do not change with the fashions or the times, but your truth is always true and you are always trustworthy. Lord, I pray for each one of us listening tonight and for myself that in those times when we are tempted by the spirit of the age or we are tempted to doubt you or tempted to believe that there is some other good than what you say is good, that you would send your Holy Spirit to protect us, that you would guide us into all truth, that you would protect us from our enemy who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and that you would, through your Holy Spirit, cause us not to just be protected, but to stand boldly proclaiming the truth of who you are and your love for this broken world. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.